Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5 to verse 18. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being formed in appearance as a man. He humbled himself being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them, like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. When did you last look at something that took your breath away? It might have been the first time you saw the best film that you've ever seen. You might be thinking of a concert or a play that you went to that just had you on the edge of your seat from beginning to end. Um, Or maybe you're thinking of a holiday that you went on and saw some part of God's creation that just left you in awe. And whatever that thing was, I wonder whether you can remember the very next thing that you thought, which might well have been, how do you follow that? (laughs) Now, in some respects, you might have the same feeling about Philippians 2. Because if you scan your eyes back over verses 5 to 11, they are one of the most incredible descriptions anywhere in all of the Bible of what God the Son has done for us and what God the Father has done and will do for the Son. And perhaps it left you thinking, well, how, how are you supposed to follow that? You get to verses 12 to 18, and maybe you think they're a bit unrelated to everything that Paul's just been talking about. Uh, if you have been in the church for a while, if you've grown up in Sunday school, you may well have memorized verses 12 and 13. But they've kind of got stuck in your head as a little bit of a disconnected proof text for the relationship between God being sovereign over all things and us still having responsibility as men and women. And then you get to verses 14 and 18, and you could read it as a little bit of a miscellaneous list of things that Christians should and shouldn't do. But that's not what Paul's doing here. 
This passage is tied to everything Paul's been saying since, well, the whole book, but particularly verse 27 of chapter 1. This is the section where he is tying together these themes of obedience and unity that have been the the big part of his argument ever since. So what does it mean, verse 27, chapter 1, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, you could take that in a thousand directions. But Paul's writing to a particular church. And this church in Philippi have got all sorts of struggles, one of which is how they are lovingly united to one another. So verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 Paul showed us how essential it is that we live in humility. How important it is that we care for each other more than we care for ourselves. Who's the best possible example you could ever have of that? Jesus. So that's why verses 5 to 11, Paul explains to us how Jesus, more than anyone ever, cares for others more than himself. But that's not the only reason that we've been delighting in verses 5 to 11. Matthew showed us last week that Jesus is also, as well as being our supreme example in humility, he's also our supreme example in obedience. Verse 8, he humbled himself, humility, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God the Son was perfectly, self-sacrificially obedient, even to the point of dying on the cross in our place. And Paul is pulling all of that together in verses 12 to 18. And you know that because he tells you he's doing that. He tells you he's doing that because in verse 12, he begins with the word therefore. He tells you that because in verse 12, he includes the word obedience. And he tells us that because in verses 14 and following, he uses and picks up all of that language of humility and unity again. So, Look back at verses 5 to 11. How do you follow that? Paul does so by showing us that, here's the big idea, growing Christians work out their salvation by pursuing unity together and a faithful witness to the world. That's where we're going this morning. And we're going to unpack the text by looking at three imperatives, three command words that Paul has in this passage. There's one in verse 12, where we're commanded to work out our salvation. There's another in verse 14, where we're commanded to do everything without grumbling and complaining. And the third one's in verse 18, where Paul commands us to be glad and rejoice with him. So let's start verses 12 and 13. And before you get worried, this is the main point. So... Points two and three will be a lot quicker. Point number one, work out your salvation as God works in you. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, or literally my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So I want you to be really clear how this passage fits with everything that Paul's been saying. Just as Jesus was obedient to the Father to earn our salvation, so we have to be obedient to the Father too. But how are we going to be obedient? We're not and couldn't possibly ever be called upon to die upon a cross as a sacrifice for somebody else. Only Jesus can do that. So what does it look like for us to be obedient like Jesus is obedient? Well, Paul's going to give us the big principle in verse 12. And then he's going to apply that principle very specifically 
to the Philippian church in verses 14 onwards to explain to them how that big principle is lived out in their struggle with some disunity. So the big picture, verse 12, is that Christians need to be obedient to God by working out our salvation. Um, Now, if you're listening, I hope uh, that might have you asking some questions in your mind. Please ignore the screen. The AV team will kindly sort all of that for us. Um, If you think about what Paul said to the Galatians, isn't the whole point of Galatians that you can't earn your salvation? Isn't the whole point of Ephesians, if you remember Ephesians too well, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. So isn't Philippians 2 verse 12 undermining salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Well, it would be if... Paul was talking about how you become a Christian, but he isn't. Salvation in the Bible doesn't just mean that moment where you are saved from being a slave to sin, forgiven your sin, and adopted as a son or daughter of God. Salvation absolutely includes all of those amazing things, but it doesn't stop there. (laughs) I did have a diagram. That may not be an option. Um, I'm sure the team will get there if they can in a minute. But what I wanted you to see was how the Bible describes salvation in the past, present, and future. It does so by describing how we have been justified in the past, where God declares that we will be viewed as righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done. And because that work is done, we are freed from the penalty of sin. That's in the past. In the present... That work of salvation is still being done. But not to justify us again and again and again, to sanctify us. God is at work making us more and more like his son. And that work is going to continue all the way until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And when we finally meet Jesus, the glorious promise is that we will be glorified. And at that point of being glorified... We will not just be freed from the penalty of sin and increasingly from the power of sin. We'll be freed from the presence of sin. It won't even be possible to sin anymore. The Bible has that wonderful, complete sense of what it means for us to be saved. Now, use that grid. If you can picture it in your mind, past, present, future, sanctified, sorry, justified, sanctified, glorified. We're freed from the penalty and the presence and The power and the presence of sin. Sorry, that's a jumble. Trying to do it without being able to look at the diagram. Apply that grid to verse 12. He's not explaining how anybody can be saved. The Christians in verse 12 have already been saved. They're his beloved in the faith. And that justification in the past is all and only because of God's grace. Verse 12 He's living out this, he's pressing home this obligation that saved Christians have to live out, to work out the salvation we have in God in every area of our lives. I hope that distinction's clear. Guys, thank you so much for all you're doing for the screens. Now, I want to dig into that in a little bit more detail, but I want to pause there for a minute because there are so many different ways that 
Christians can misunderstand what it means to be saved. One of them is to say, well, seriously, James, you just need to chill because I prayed a prayer once and I gave my life to Jesus, so I'm saved and it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of my life. Look at verse 12. It really, really matters. It really matters that we work out our salvation. And that brings us to another temptation that lots of Christians get sucked in by. Um, I was going to show you a little sticker that says, let go and let God. Who's seen that bumper sticker around somewhere? It's a very common phrase, isn't it? And, and for so many, um, as with many memorable slogans, there is an element of truth in the slogan. So lots of us wrestle with a desire to be in control of everything. We want to have everything managed. We want, as Simon was saying to the kids earlier, we want to know everything that's going on, not just in the class, but in the whole week and in the whole of our lives. And sometimes that longing becomes a sinful refusal to trust God because we're holding on. We're trying to control everything in our lives. And in that situation, it is right to say, brother, sister, actually, you need to let go of trying to control everything because you're not God. You need to entrust your life and whatever God may bring into your life to him because he's your loving heavenly father. But what that doesn't mean and what we mustn't misunderstand that statement to mean is that when somebody says to us, let go and let God, picture it like you're in a car, that the response that you're supposed to have as a Christian is to get out of the driving seat, hand over the steering wheel to God, and then just sit and chill in the back seat while God chauffeurs you around everywhere. That's not verse 12. Verse 12 is we are to work out our salvation, and that's proper work. As much work as you would put into your day job. What does it look like? I want to dig into that by asking four questions of the text. I'll speak them as slowly as I can so you can catch them if you're taking some notes. Four questions in verses 12 and 13. Number one, how should we work out? A small gap in the recording occurs at this point. Call out to him, Abba, Father. We pray to the one who's promised that he will listen to our prayers because he loves to hear our prayers. And all of those things are completely true. But as we remember them, we mustn't forget that we come to the one who is the galaxy-creating, universe-sustaining, unapproachably holy God. Steve Lawson has a lovely way of describing this. He says, God isn't a kindly spiritual grandfather sitting in the sky. He isn't a teddy bear or a kitten. Our God is a great lion who loves us, but his love doesn't mean we're at liberty to domesticate him. We are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Question number two, how can we work out our salvation? None of us are spiritually mature enough to do this in ourselves. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. We're mindful of the greatness of the God that we serve. And even as Christians, we come before him in fear and trembling. So how can we possibly do it? That gets you to the promise in verse 13. Look at the way that sentence begins. For. Paul is deliberately linking the challenge, work it out, 
with the enabling promise in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Now, there's a mystery here that we cannot fully explain. And that's okay. I'm not going to turn this into a systematic theology lecture and try and explain to you the most compelling arguments for how the sovereignty of God, which is over all things, still means that all creatures in his world are personally responsible for their actions. We are, and I can point you in some good directions if you want to read into that. What I want you to see here is how this forms part of Paul's argument in what he's saying. Here we are commanded, verse 12, to work out our salvation. And Paul is really clear that God's the one who's made it possible for us to do it. He is the one who begins the work. He's the one who empowers the work. And everything that we do is enabled and sustained and driven by the one who is at work within us. Third question, if that's true, how does God work in us so we can work out our salvation? Look at the text. He changes our wills and our actions. Perhaps you've spent time with a Christian, or perhaps you've even been wrestling with this thought yourself, that basically the Christian life is God saves you and sets you up and then leaves you to just get through life until you die or Jesus returns. Well, here's one of Paul's answers to that way of thinking. If God just left us, we wouldn't even have a fully sanctified will to want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because the work that God's got to do in us begins by changing our will, the way that we want to do things, before he then enables us to do them by working in our actions. That's how desperately we're in need of God's help. And all of that gets us to the big question. Why? Why is God still in the game? You think about the different ways that I think about the different ways that I've messed up this week. You think about the same ways that you have not done or done things which you know you shouldn't have thought or said or done. Why is God still committed to my sanctification in all of the ways that I have messed up? Fourth question Why does God work in us? This is the best answer of all. Look at verse 13. In order to fulfill his good purpose. Your translation may say, his good pleasure. God is at work, and please don't misinterpret that um, God is at work, as though there might be times when God isn't at work, that the Greeks are present continuous. So you could more helpfully say, God is working, present, continuous, in your life. God is working in your life because he loves you. Not because you did slightly better this week than you did last week, so he gives you a little bit more of a push. Not because you've done better this week than Bob or Barbara somewhere else, and so he's going to give you a little bit more of a help. God's working in your life because he loves you. Period. It's a wonderful description of that um, to God's people of old in Deuteronomy 7. Um, 
Sorry, the text won't appear here, but the, the text is this, and, and many of you will know it. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. Alec Matia has a lovely way of pressing this home. When he says, um, on, the, on the one hand... It is no answer to say that the Lord loves you because he loves you. I mean, what kind of an answer is that at one level? It's but why? And he says, but on the other hand, it is the greatest and best answer of all because it means that though the reasons are hidden from us, they are reasons that are good enough for God. If you are a Christian here this morning... The best news you can hear today is that God loves you because he loves you. Whatever you are struggling with, however many times you have stumbled this week, the best answer you can hear is that God is the one who is changing and sustaining and empowering you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because he loves you. Now, that's a big comfort challenge in every single area of life. And in a minute, Paul is going to apply it very, very specifically to an area where the Philippians really needed to see what this would look like if it was lived out in practice. And we're going to get to that detail in a minute. But before we get there, I want us to be really clear how high Paul has raised the bar here. Because everything that follows in verses 14 to 18 is part of how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That, that's how much this matters. So, flip it around if, we, if you want to. If we, if we take verses 14 and 15 in reverse, if, if we don't care about grumbling and arguing and being difficult in the local church, that's verse 14, or about how our disunity affects our witness to the world, that's verse 15, then, come back to verse 13, we are fighting against God's ongoing work of salvation in our lives. That's how important all of this is. That's how big a deal all of this is. Unity and obedience aren't just optional extras for boring Christians who lack the drive to be different. They are right at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. And we'll see that as we work much more quickly through the rest of the text. Secondly, God commands us, this is point number two, work out your salvation together and personally so that you'd be a witness to the world. Work out your salvation together and personally so that you'd be a witness to the world. The second imperative um, that Paul has is here in verse 14. Do everything. Not just some things, not just the big things, not just the public things. Do everything. And what Paul goes on to do is unpack this in three spheres. We are to work out our salvation in the way that Paul has in mind, verses 12 and 13, in our relationships with others in the church, talking about Christians, and ourselves, 
And both of those things then feed into the way that we are a witness to the world. Now, I did have a little diagram here. Diagrams help you think of it as three concentric circles. And if you draw the middle one first, we're going to think about how this affects our relationships with each other, which is what Paul says. We are to do everything without grumbling or arguing, as in to one another. A grumbling, if you look at um, the word that Paul's using, it carries that idea of a secret displeasure that's not openly talked about, but there's this mumbling grumbling that's going on in the background. That's the kind of background murmuring that he means when he talks about grumbling. And arguing is the overflow of a contentious heart that just wants to question and challenge everything. Paul is not saying that every Christian is supposed to agree with every other Christian about everything. That's not the problem that's going on in the Philippians here. He's saying that there's a kind of arguing that it comes out of a mindset that just loves to be difficult. I have a mate in ministry who told me that um, somebody started coming to his church a little while ago. And they came for a few weeks, and then my friend went and, and sp- uh, spoken to by other members of the church every time they came. But uh, they'd been for a few weeks, and then my friend went to go and speak to them, introduced himself. And this person said, hi, my name's so-and-so. And, and one of the very first things that they said was, If I settle with you, it's my job to make life difficult for you. Just as brazen as that. And I'm sure they said it, meaning that it was a kind of badge of honor, I'm going to keep you accountable kind of thing. But if you look at the words that Paul uses, grumbling and arguing, they're the same words that almost resulted in the Israelites being destroyed after the exodus. That's how serious this is. Paul is pleading with New Covenant Christians not to be like the Old Covenant Christians who experienced the judgment of God. And if the Philippians stopped grumbling and arguing, if they they worked out their salvation in this area in the way that they engaged with one another, then it would result in them becoming blameless and pure. And if you're doing the diagrams, this one's the smaller circle on the inside. This is talking about what it means for ourselves. What does it mean to work out our salvation in this way? It means that we will become blameless and pure. So not grumbling and arguing with others is going to help us grow in the way that we will become more blameless and pure ourselves. Which is not to say that we can become perfect. We can't. We won't ever be perfect until we're glorified when we're with Jesus. What he's meaning is nobody would ever be able to point the finger fairly and say, you lot are a bunch of grumpy, grumbling agitators couldn't say that if the church family is doing everything without grumbling or arguing. Which brings us to the third sphere where this is worked out. Here's the biggest sphere on the outside where we look at our witness to the world. How we work out our salvation with each other in the church shapes the way that we then grow in our own likeness of the Lord Jesus personally. And both of those things together are then a witness to a watching world. We thought a few weeks ago, didn't we, about how the world that we're living in is descending into these radical tribes where everybody kind of coalesces in a group that they feel that they belong to, which identifies with all the things that they care about. And then then you raise up the drawbridge and you say that anybody who's in any other group somewhere else isn't just different or has different interests to me. They're the enemy. 
That's the kind of tribal view that's dominating our world, and it's, it's human nature, isn't it? It's the problem for the Philippians as well, which is why, into all of that bleak tribalism, Paul says, humble, obedient, loving Christians are to be children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I want you to imagine a picture with me for a minute uh, in a kind of Indiana Jones-style scene where you've just come across some dark cave and in classic Indiana Jones style, somehow also happened to come across a torch or a lantern, this is the only one that I have, um, and some matches, because that's how it always works, isn't it? Um, so there you are, you're approaching this cave, and as you go further and further into this cave, you're holding on to the only light that there is. You go further and further in, it gets darker and darker. Now, how hard, how tightly are you going to hold on to this lantern? As it gets so dark, your lantern is the only light you can see. You're going to be like this, aren't you? And that's the first part of the point that Paul has to make. We are to hold firmly, hold fast to the gospel so that we would not lose sight of it ourselves. But it's only the first part because we could equally translate hold firmly as hold forth. And I think Paul's trying to make both points at the very same time here. What is the point in having a lantern in a dark cave? Well, yes, it's to help you know where you're going. But if you discover there's somebody else who's stuck in the cave, the whole point of you having a light is that they would come to see the light and be able to save themselves too. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That for all of the goodness that there is, and there is wonderful goodness in us being change in our salvation so that we are less grumbly and angry and more united together. And that then feeds a way that we individually become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of those things are wonderful and good. But if it stops there, we're still not doing all the work that the Lord Jesus intended. Our light is not only to be held fast, it is to be held forth because others are lost in the cave of our world until they see the light of Jesus. And it's our privilege to take that world to them. That would be for their eternal good. That's definitely going to bring God glory. (laughs) Curveball. And then it would enable Paul to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And I hope you read that and thought, hang on a minute, Paul. I thought boasting was a bad thing. And the short answer is, well, it's not always bad. What is Paul boasting about here? He isn't boasting in anything that he has done. He's looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and all of God's people are going to be gathered around him. And on that day, the work that, verse 13... God enabled Paul to do in sharing the gospel with the Philippians. And then, verses 14 and 15, the work that the Philippians went and did by God's power to go and tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the fruit of all of that work is then going to be on display. And who gets all the glory? It's not Paul. And it's not the Philippians. It's the God 
who is the one who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, there's loads more that we could say about verse 16, but we literally don't have time this morning. So if you're interested, <laughs> I wrote a paper when we were in seminary many years ago entitled An Evaluation of Paul's Theology of Boasting in Others. That kind of fits today, doesn't it? Um, I've printed off a number of these on the welcome desk at the back, and if they've run out by the time you get there, drop me an email this week if you would like to think about that a bit more, and I will gladly send you a copy. So we're to work out our salvation as God works in us. We're to work out our salvation together and personally so that we're a witness to the world. Thirdly and very briefly, Paul says, work out your salvation so that it brings you and others joy. Work out your salvation so that it brings you and others joy. Paul describes himself as being poured out like a drink offering. Uh, We actually don't know a great deal about drink offerings. If you've been following us in our Exodus series, we had a drink offering as part of uh, the consecration of the priests in chapter 29. Um, And as much as we do know, they seem to function a bit like something that you add on top of an existing offering. So it's not like a main offering in and of itself. Um, I don't want to use illustrations because it would always end up being flippant. But it's, it's, the, it's something that you would add on top of something that is in itself the main thing. Okay? What's the main thing here that Paul considers to be the topping on which his life is being offered? The main thing, look at verse 16, 17, is the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. That's an amazing vision of both humility and partnership. Because here's the Apostle Paul, who's hundreds of miles away from Philippi, but almost certainly in Rome, For all that he has done, not just for the Philippians, but for all of the churches everywhere that he has been, he says that even if his life is being poured out like the extra bit that goes on the top of something, which is the main event, and the main event is your faith, Philippian church, then he will rejoice. Which is staggering in every way. Because here's Paul, he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman God, his circumstances are not the reason he's going to be rejoicing. Circumstances are, well, rubbish. Not as bad as they'd get, but they're pretty rubbish. But he so loved these fellow Christians into whom he had invested in different ways over the years so that he saw their flourishing as one of the wonderful ways in which the God who's at work in all of our lives is showing himself faithful to Paul's ministry that he would rejoice even in that prison to know that his life is just a little extra on the top of their service. It's a really challenging reminder to us, isn't it? In this third and final imperative, verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In the Greek, he literally uses the same word for rejoice twice. He literally says, so you too rejoice and rejoice 
with me. Not because our circumstances are fab. They might be awful. That You might feel like you're in the prison, chained to a guard, and everything's hard. But circumstances aren't the reason for joy for a Christian. Now, none of us are apostles. And very few of us have planted churches. But how can we press verses 17 and 18 home? Every single one of you has walked something of your Christian life with someone else. Now, some of you have been a part of other churches for many, many years before you came to Emmanuel. And you could bring to mind right now maybe even hundreds of people that you have walked something of your Christian life with. Many of you, and many who aren't here because you're doing it right now, have faithfully taught our children and our young people through the Sunday schools and the youth work and then on into the student work. And now many of those, thinking about shrubs being 25 years old, many of those 500, 600 shrubs kids, they're all grown. But many of those that we're thinking about in our church family especially have grown, are walking on with the Lord and are doing that in other places. Maybe many of you are thinking of the pastors in training that we have had the privilege of having here for a season. And in lots and lots of ways, they've poured into you and been a blessing to you. But in other ways too, you've, you've spent time with and poured into and been a blessing to them as well. And so you're thinking about, I'm going to get some names wrong, but I'm going to try my best. You're going to be thinking about um, Sharon and uh, Ray Trainer in Southport. And you're going to be thinking about... Um, Paul and Helen Gibson in Sandbach. And you're going to be thinking about um, the Bentons, uh, Chrissy and Matt in Aylesbury. And you're going to be thinking about Richard and Cherith in Don Donald. And you might be thinking of Andy and Anna Kite that we've sent and then are ministering in East London Tabernacle. There's all sorts of people. And so the list goes on and on and on. What I want you to do for a minute is I want you to think of some of those people with whom you have partnered in the Christian life. I want you to think of them the same way Paul thinks of the Philippines. He loved them so much and was so thankful for the work that God was doing in their life that even if his life resulted in hardship or even death because of the gospel, In the face of that, Paul could rejoice because they were faithfully serving. What a wonderful way of thinking about the scope of partnership and humility and togetherness in the gospel. It's a wonderful picture of of what it means to be really gripped by what's going on in verses 12 and 13. That as we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we're reminded that it's God who does the work in us. And what is the foundation for all of that as we think of ourselves and other people that we love who are serving Jesus in other places? Foundation for all of it is God loves you. And God loves our brothers and sisters who are serving in other places. May we long for them 
and for God's blessing to be upon their ministry even more than we would long for it ourselves.